Some of you are old folks like I am. Do you always hear people talking about or say yourself, life is just speeding up all the time. It's getting faster and faster, and I can't keep up. Even when I retired, you know all these stories? There wasn't time to work, all of this. Well, speed is a factor. You, you heard our pastor mention last week that Jesus, all through the Gospel of Mark, is almost running at a major clip. Mark has him moving quickly from this place there. He uses the word immediately, almost always, to, to change from place to place. Jesus was trying to catch up, too, with what was going on in his life, very much as we find we are. And at the same time, there was a certain euphoria, I suppose with Jesus and certainly with his disciples, in realizing Jesus' powers. This is early on in his ministry. You remember that, this scripture passage that we read. And he is apparently just beginning to find out that when he reaches to lift up Simon's mother-in-law, who is not feeling well, and she gives him her hand, that's the worst sin in the world, and I'm committing it. <laughs> and if that's my daughter Donna, you're going to hear from her, and she's going to hear from me. <laughs> I bet you I have to start over. <laughs> I apologize for that. I want to bring you back to Jesus' euphoria and the other euphorias that were being felt before we all started laughing at something. Jesus, beginning to be aware of the power that was in his hand and in his spirit and in his being, and, of course, the disciples, whose reaction isn't given to us in most instances, but we know that they, among many other people, marveled at the, things, the way he said some things and the things he did. And as I was saying when I was rudely interrupted, that Jesus was taking the hand of Simon's mother-in-law, and apparently something happened when he took her hand to lift her up. She felt better. And she got up, and she went back to work in the, in the old way of talking about women's duties in the home. She served them. Well, as those things happened, it seems that Jesus' intensity itself grew. And so, as John called mentioned a minute ago, he went to bed that night, and he woke up very early the next morning, Jesus did. Woke up before daylight, and we who live under streetlights have to realize what waking up before daylight means. It means you can't see where you're going in most instances. It's hard to imagine what it's like in true darkness for us who live always in that kind of light. But as those things happened, Jesus' intensities grew, and he went to bed, and he woke up early, and he moved, who knows how, into a deserted place where he could pray by himself. And he did. And sometime, we assume it was daylight, but we don't know, sometime 
some of the disciples showed up and said, man, everybody's looking for you. Implied is, what are you doing out here? Your job is over there. And Jesus only gives a curious response. Let's go somewhere else. Let's go to these other places. Let's go to the other towns and villages. That's what I came out to do. I don't know whether he came out that morning to do that. There's so much in what Jesus thought that we don't know. We suppose a lot. Sometimes we're wrong. But Jesus had a feeling, perhaps beginning that morning, that he had to go say some of those things he was saying to other people in other places. And so he did. And it gives the picture that Mark wanted to give us of Jesus always being in a hurry, but also at the same time listening as he went. For it seems to be that it was in response to that early morning time of prayer that things solidified with him and he wasn't willing to hang around that same village and deal with the people who needed him there, and they needed him. But he wanted to go elsewhere. There were other places to be. And like somebody who feels there's just not enough time, not enough time to do what we got to do, Jesus wanted to move on somewhere else. So he said, let's go. And that's one of the lessons in this, that perhaps a morning prayer, perhaps any other time, a prayer may be the occasion for us seeing more clearly what the task is going to be. Or knowing that we've got to move somewhere else to do the task. Or knowing that there's an unfolding drama to our lives that we may not have seen yet. Only God knows. Yet. That's one of the lessons here, that prayer, early morning or whenever, may solidify something in your own life, may clarify something that's going on in your own life, that without the prayer, so far, had not been solidified. That's a good lesson. The other lesson I want to draw from this for our benefit this morning, I hope, is the sense that the important thing is just being there. Now you think about what you might have said to Jesus when you didn't want to lose his presence in your community. Oh, they can take care of themselves. Don't worry about them. There's plenty for you to do here for a long time, Jesus. Hang around. That's my selfish, that's always my selfish prayer. But we have to remember that a part of what God calls Jesus and us and others to be is there. Sometimes it's here, but quite often it's there. Quite often it's there. So we with our prayers and other motivations, try to go where the need is. Sometimes very hard to leave where we are and go where the need is. But we do that 
And the church has learned through the years to do that. I reflected on some churches that I knew in getting ready for this. The church that I retired from some years ago, not necessarily while I was there, decided it needed to participate with the other churches in the community who were already in a process of hosting the homeless of the community for a week in their church building. It was a big undertaking, and they did a lot of exploring and talking with each other about doing it, but they said, yeah, we want to take our turn. We will host the homeless for a week. The practice was that the homeless would gather in a certain place in that community, and a bus would come and take them to where the driver knew was the church that would be the home for that week. And so for 30-some people, and when it was really cold, it was for more than that, that church decided to become, for one week, the location for the homeless ministry. They found out when they were going into it that everything was covered all year long except the week of Christmas. And they had to think about that because that was a big deal because it took a dozen or so people as hosts to be present with the homeless at the church all night long. And people had decided to do that except for Christmas week. And to my everlasting pride, that congregation said, we'll take Christmas week. And they did. And they have for years, for years. Christmas week in that congregation has been given over to being there not being home in bed, being there because there's a dinner and a breakfast involved too so that it was more than a dozen people who were there. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, it's beautiful. They were there. Our church here, Calvary. Did you see that circle of people who are here this morning? So many children looking for some guidance from parents and experienced parents of other children and other people who are willing, in many instances, to give up a weekend away or something else, whatever it might be, to be there and to let those children find out from you and you and you and you what it's like to live a Christ, I'm sorry, to live a life that is centered and focused on Christ. Those children want that. You may never hear it from them, but you know, we know, they want that. And our church has a growing opportunity to deal with the children that parents now entrust to us. We are Christians that they want their children to be like. It's a wonderful opportunity, and we're already well on the way to meeting that. Our church for a number of years have, has ministered to defeated peoples. We don't know much about defeat. Our daughter who lives in Hungary and our son-in-law over there have told us numerous times about how depressed is the culture and the people of the Hungarian people. And our son-in-law says there's a reason for that. He says, not since, I forget the figures exactly, but he said not since about 900 A.D. 
have the Hungarian people won a battle. Isn't that wild? They have been defeated time after time, and in our own lifetimes, for many of us, they were defeated by the Nazis, and then they were defeated by the communist regime. And now they're trying to pull together, hardly knowing how, because one time after another for centuries, they have felt the sting of defeat. And our church sends a team every year for several years to another defeated peoples. We go to the Standing Rock Reservation to deal with Indians who were conquered by Europeans who turn out to be our ancestors. And the Indians were moved away from their normal way of being into territories where they live as a defeated people. And so we bring back stories to each other and we hear them everywhere about the drunkenness and about the other kinds of limitations on their lives. And it may help us to understand they're a defeated people that we can't really understand all that well because we feel so victorious. And yet, those defeated people hear from a hundred and some people in their own valley and the ten to a dozen people from our own congregation and get a feel for what it's like to be loved and uplifted by somebody who cares. There are churches who have taken a different tack with the immigrants. That's a huge problem and a huge debate in our culture now. But where this nation of immigrants is now building walls and barbed wires and other things to make sure that we don't get too many of, us, of them, well, how do we do it? Is it us or is it them? But some churches, particularly where there are strong numbers of immigrants, have learned what it means to those immigrants and to the community to teach literacy, to teach citizenship, to teach Christian principles, to teach the American way, whatever that is, to teach all these things in a one-on-one -on -one or one-on-group or many-on-group way to peoples who are pulled loose from life and have no present moorings. Churches do that in a lot of places. And we can be proud of the kind of ministry that they have done. You see how closely this matches Jesus being there. Keeping up appearances means to us, like the British TV show, being something we aren't, trying to be much better and not letting anybody else know that we're just plain old folks. But it means something much more than that. When we start going on mission, keeping up appearances is being there wherever and for whomever Christ wishes some good folk to be there. Keeping up appearances, Jesus did. In one community, after another, after another, after another, even though he left some folks behind who were sad, he went to where he thought his father, God, was calling him. And we don't get past that. And we may find sometimes, at whatever age we are, 
in the near or maybe even distant future when being there will be different from being here. That God will call you or me to a place where we didn't even know we were needed. Being there. And you will keep up appearances wherever he sends you. You will go. We have a lot to say. Not me. We have a lot to say. And sometimes God pulls hard on our lives to say, let me tell you about such and such, so and so, here or there. And he pulls us to pull together some words or some gifts and drop them in the right place where he wants them. And I bet you we will. Because we are made like him in his image. And even though that's a big gift, it is also a big responsibility. May God bless us as we go out into the dark to pray and wonder, God, where should I be next?